Please turn, to, turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. We are actually this morning be looking at a very lengthy passage in Joshua. And the reason why you'll see as we work our way through it. But I will only be reading two sections. We're actually looking from chapter 10 verse 16 all the way through chapter 12 verse 24. But I'll only be reading chapter 10 verses 16 to 27 and chapter 11 verses 16 to 23. Please give your attention to God's word. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. And then over in chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, 
according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. I would like to ask you to think for just a moment how you would answer this question, or actually how you would complete this sentence. The sentence is this, I will be successful in my life when blank. I will be successful in my life when what happens. Now, nobody's going to hear your thoughts, so be honest. Don't give the Sunday school answers. Don't give the answer you give if the pastor asks you. Give the real answer, how you really think most of the time. I will be successful when what? When you get the promotion at work? When you have a six-figure salary? When you finish your degree? When you're popular? When you lose 40 pounds? When you get married? When you have a family? When will you be a success in your own eyes? Few of us have arrived at a place where we'd feel comfortable saying, I'm here, I'm arrived, I'm, I'm a success. Because there just seems to be always something beyond our reach that we have to get to, a place we have to get to, an accomplishment that we have to, to make in order to say that we're a success in life. And our culture puts relentless pressure on us to prove ourselves to be winners and not losers. But the problem is the criteria that the culture is using to determine whether we're a success in life, that the criteria that they use, they're, they're upside down from God's perspective. That was a major theme in the teaching of Jesus Christ, wasn't it? Over and over again, and he said, in his kingdom, losing is winning. In his kingdom, being first means being last, and being last means being first. In his kingdom, the greatest are the least, and the least are the greatest. In his kingdom, the weak are strong, and the strong are weak. We face those same kind of upside-down values when it comes to the work of the church, don't we? We can't measure success in the church the same way that the world measures success. You can't be asking yourselves, how big is our budget? How big and beautiful is our building? How many ministry programs do we have? What's our average attendance on a Sunday morning? If you try to measure the success of a church that way, that's the way the world would measure it. But in the eyes of God, there are many churches that are winning by those criteria that are actually losing big time in the eyes of God. And it's just a warning to a church that when you're winning by the world's criteria, when you are getting bigger, when your budget is growing, when you're accomplishing more outward ministry, that that is a tempting time for a church, a time of great danger for the church. It's a time when you can easily lose sight of what is real success in the eyes of God. As we look at the church of the Old Testament, that body of people we call Israel, they did a lot of losing in their history. The Old Testament is full of God's people losing. But this section that we're looking at right here in the middle of the book of Joshua 
is actually an impressive winning streak by both the world's and God's values. They were in an incredible winning streak for the armies of Israel as they took possession. It's this passage of scripture where they take possession of the promised land that had been promised to Abraham and his family hundreds of years earlier. And it's kind of interesting that how at this stage the chronicler of Israel's history takes a different tack because it's taken nine and a half chapters for us to look at three victories, the first three victories that Israel experienced when they crossed the Jordan to take possession of the promised land. The victory over Jericho, the victory over Ai, and the victory over the five, king, the five kingdom coalition that we looked at last week. Nine and a half chapters to cover three victories in somewhat intimate detail. But now we get a comparatively swift overview of the conquest of the entire rest of the land over the course of two and a half chapters. The list here of victories is really breathtaking. And if you were to just read these two and a half chapters, what, take eight, 10, 12 minutes to read them, just read straight through it, it feels like a blitzkrieg. Looks like they just sweep through very rapidly as all these victories are listed. But there's actually a statement buried in chapter 11, or yeah, in chapter 11, verse 18. You may not have noticed it when we read through it. It says, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Commentators have tried to discern from hints in the book of Joshua how long it actually took to conquer all of these kings and kingdoms. And they estimate probably six or seven years. To put that in perspective, that's about how long World War II lasted for the Allies to beat the Axis nations. So this was a long, grueling series of battles, but it was a long list of victories. It's all about completing the mission, and they almost did. In one sense, there's very triumphant language in these chapters about what they accomplished, but there's these little hints that they didn't quite complete the mission, and that'll come up later. In chapter one, he said, God said to his people, go into the land, conquer the land, destroy the peoples who live there. They have come under my judgment. Judgment has been delayed, but now is to be poured out. He said to them, I am giving you the land. He said in chapter one, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised. It was a gift, and yet... Israel had to work very hard and fight very hard to take possession of it. The boundaries, what's interesting, if you compare the boundaries that are listed, when God promised that he would give them the land, and he gives the boundaries there in chapter 1, they're all fulfilled here in chapters 11 and 12. God was faithful to his promises. There are several statements, though, and we see it even in the passage that we read earlier, that there were some pockets of Canaanites that were left in the land. And we know from reading later books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, that Canaanites were still found in different parts of the Promised Land. And so the, the mission wasn't entirely complete, but it, what these chapters are trying to communicate to us is that by God's grace and God's empowerment, largely the mission was completed. As we look at the end of chapter 10, we're actually going back to the victories we talked about last week over the five king coalition. 
The end of chapter 10 adds some interesting details. It kind of goes back, it kind of completes the story halfway through the chapter, and then at the end of the chapter, it goes and shares some details that I think are included, the author included it because it teaches some very important theological concepts. There's a lot of rich symbolism in what happens at the end of chapter 10. After the armies of the five kingdoms were wiped out, remember by the supernatural hailstorm? primarily, and then also the armies of Israel, these five armies were wiped out. What it says at the end of chapter 10 is that those kings went scurrying, trying to escape the wrath of God. They scurried to a cave, and they went deep in the cave to try to hide from, the, from Joshua and his armies. But they were quickly found out, and that what was to be their refuge became their prison. And Joshua, interestingly, has his soldiers roll stones in front of the cave. He says to them, go ahead and finish the battle, wipe out the rest of the troops, and then come back and we'll deal with these five kings. At the end of the battle, Joshua has these kings brought out. It appears that he has them lay on the ground. And then we have this interesting little ceremony. And I think it's rich with biblical symbolism. He has the Canaanite kings lie on the ground, and then he has the commanders of his army come and place their feet upon the necks of the defeated kings. Now this sounds like something you might see in a war movie where a bunch of drunken, raucous soldiers just want to humiliate the people they've beaten, but that, this is Joshua doing this for a message, for a purpose, it's a sign. Anybody who knew the promises of God, any faithful Israelite would see what the symbolism was behind this action. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Actually, Joshua tells them what it's about. He says in verse 25 of chapter 10, Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. That goes back to the great enemy. Genesis 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve had sinned and rebelled against God, after they had essentially sided with Satan, the great enemy of God, and followed his instruction and rejected God's instruction and therefore put themselves in alliance with the evil one. God, in his mercy, does not destroy them eternally for what their sin deserved, but he actually speaks to Satan and he gives the essence of what we call the gospel in what he says to Satan. This is what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That was the beginnings of the gospel. That God did not allow this people to remain in alliance with Satan, but he says, I'm going to put enmity between these people and Satan. And one day, a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent, while the serpent bruised his heel. And you have that beautiful picture of what essentially happened at the cross. And so this is what the symbolism, this is Joshua before the Lord saying to the people of God, is it still happening? Those who fight for the evil one, those who are on the side of Satan, those who oppose the throne of God in heaven will be defeated. And the promise that was given will be fulfilled. There is coming one who will ultimately and finally crush the head of the seed of the serpent. 
It's a good reminder to us. Sometimes we feel like, how does all this battle apply to us? But here's an important message for us. You see, the salvation, this gospel that we preach about Jesus dying for our sins and being raised from the dead for our justification, this gospel that we preach, yes, it's about forgiveness of sin. But it's not only about forgiveness of sin. It's about victory. Victory over Satan. Victory over sin. Victory over death, the final enemy. The salvation that Christ accomplished for us is a victory over evil in all of its forms. And that's what this ceremony points to. God is faithful to his promise. Interestingly then, what does Joshua do after the kings are executed? He has them nailed to a tree. They're hung on a tree until sundown. Because back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it says that any criminal who is hung on a tree... It's a sign that that, per, that that person is under the curse of God. And so it's a visible representation. Again, it wasn't done just to humiliate the enemy. It was done to communicate a message. These kings had rebelled against the one true God, and justice has been served. They are under God's curse forever. Well, the rest of chapter 10 and chapter 11 contains a list of the rest of the kingdoms that it, Joshua and his armies were able to defeat by God's grace. And these are examples. The reason we didn't read it all is most of the passages we skipped over are just long lists of kings and kingdoms that were defeated by the Israelite armies. And, you know, when you read scripture, a lot of times you feel like, you know, you get frustrated with passages like this. Some parts of Leviticus and some parts of the historical passages. just a bunch of lists of names. Why is this in the Bible? God doesn't intend every part of the Bible to read like a novel. Much of it does. Much of it's very engrossing history, great stories, great teaching. But some of it is just lists of names like this to communicate one powerful message as it beats on you from name to name to name of king and kingdom that fell before the hand of God. The message at the bottom of it is God is faithful to his promises. And there are long passages like this that are meant just to drum that message into us. God is all-powerful. God has promised grace and God is faithful to his promises and those who oppose him come under his curse and eternal destruction. The end of chapter 10 talks about the campaign. There were basically two major campaigns, military campaigns, that led to the conquest of the entire promised land of Canaan. There was a southern campaign and that's recorded at the end of chapter 10. And again, it just basically lists their victories as they took over sequentially all the bottom, the, the southern uh, territories in Canaan. And then chapter 11 talks about a great northern campaign. And at the beginning of the northern campaign, there is an interesting, again, it stops the list there for a moment in chapter 11 and tells an interesting aspect of the victory that probably the, the, the hardest battle they had to fight was not the five Canaanite coalition they faced, we looked at last week, but this coalition led by the king of Hazor, it's kind of the last gasp of the Canaanite armies where all the remaining kingdoms came together in a massive force. It's described there in chapter 11, verse 4, where it says, And they, these Canaanite kings and, king and armies, came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like a sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. We're meant to picture that in our minds and realize the vast, massive army that they had pulled together. And 
it mentions the horses and chariots because you have to understand that was the high-tech battlement of the day. That was, that was, those are the resources that, that the, the most powerful, most wealthy nations had were horses and chariots. Israelites didn't have that. Those were the tanks and jet fighters of that day. Those were the heavy armaments. And they outnumbered the, the armies of Israel massively, and yet Israel defeated them on the field of battle. Joshua and his low-tech army succeeded because why? Chapter 11, verse 8, God gave them over to Israel. Again, it was a gift from God, but they had to fight hard for it. And that was the breaking point for the Canaanites. The rest of the taking of the northern territories was kind of a mop-up affair. And then in chapter 12, and again, I didn't read chapter 12, but if you just look there for a second, it's a list of all the individual kings. Those kings represented their peoples in opposition to God as rebels to God's kingdom. Those individual kings are listed that were defeated by the armies of Israel. Two of them on the eastern side of the Jordan that were defeated while Moses was still leading Israel, and then 31 kings on the western side that were all defeated by Israel's armies under Joshua. And then there's an interesting note just at the end of chapter 11, if you noticed it, we read this earlier. It points out there, again, there's a theological purpose into every detail he throws in here. At the end of chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, it says that Israel's armies even defeated the Anakim. Do you remember who the Anakim were? They were the giants in the land. They were the giants that were in the mountains that scared the Israelites' father's generation. Remember when Moses led them to the promised land and they sent the, ten, the 12 spies in, 10 spies came back and said, there's giants in the land, we can't do it. They're too big, they're too powerful for us, their cities are too well fortified, we can't do it. And so God's people did not obey his command, did not trust in the Lord, and then they've spent a generation in the wilderness, dying in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. Here's the point. Joshua said this is what obeying God's command and putting faith in God can do. They even defeated the Anakim. They defeated giants in the land. Then you have the key summary at the end of chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. And again, a theological comment. Because rest is a powerful image in the Old Testament of God's saving work. The whole purpose of God's work of salvation is to give rest to God's people. To give rest to the creation and to give rest to God's people. That's the hope of the gospel. But having said all that, I think you're still probably sitting there and thinking about all these ancient military battles, all these old, uh, you know, uh, low-tech armies and, you know, horses and chariots and saying, what does this have to do with my life in the 21st century? Well, let me take a moment just to go back to that idea of what does it mean to be a success? This was a time of great success in the Old Testament church of Israel. It was a time of great winning, great success. But what was the key to their success? What made Israel successful during that era? There's where you're going to see the application to your life today. The mission of old, the Old Testament church, Israel, and the mission of the New Testament church appear very different on the surface. 
For instance, we no longer carry the sword of judgment against God's enemies. We no longer shed blood to, pour, to carry out God's judgment against those who oppose him. Instead, we carry the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we bring the gospel to the world. And our victories come by preaching a gospel of peace and grace. But the keys to success in our mission is the same as the keys to success in Joshua's mission. The first key, trust in the Lord and not in horses and chariots. To be a success in the eyes of God, to be a success in the kingdom of God, trust in the Lord and not in horses and chariots. It's interesting to me that in these, all these battles that took all these years to accomplish, there's no mention of any miracles. There's no walls that fall down miraculously. There's no uh, hailstorm, miraculous hailstorm. There's no stopping of the sun. And yet God was still causing every victory that they accomplished. Chapter 10, verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Even though Joshua and his army had to use human wisdom, strategies, hard work, resources, blood, sweat, and tears in order to win hard-fought battles, still it was because God was enabling them, God was preparing the way, God was fighting for them, and God gave them the victory. God was no less with his people in these battles and these victories than he was at Jericho or Ai or anywhere where he did it uh, with the five kingdom uh, coalition where he did miracles. Because every victory comes because God is with us and God fights for us. That principle is still the case. Our victories don't come through our efforts or our resources. The only thing that matters is whether God is with us and fighting for us or not. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, it's kind of interesting. When we think about the battles we talked about here, go back to a promise that God gave to his people through Moses a generation earlier. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God speaks through Moses, and this is what he says to his people. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. You see, even though our mission looks different, the essence of success on our mission is still the same. Is God with us? Is God fighting for us? That's why being faithful to God's word especially faithful to the gospel message, and being in continuous prayer is so important to success in life. It's because we need to be sure that God is with us. And God is with his people when they uphold the authority of his word, when they make the center of their message the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when they depend upon him by prayer. That's when we know that God is with us. And that's all we need to know to be successful. The Lord drove that message home in an interesting way. I don't know if you remember this. Back in chapter 11 and verse 6. In the battle with the northern coalition of kings, 
After they had won the war, this is what the Lord said to his people. He said, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now that's a really interesting and unexpected instruction for the armies of Israel. Why would he have them do that? Hamstringing meant that they cut the tendons in the back of the knee, of the back of the back leg of the horse. So that not to kill the horse, but to make it useless for military purposes. It could only be used for domestic purposes. That's what it meant to hamstring the horses. And then they were to destroy, to burn the chariots. From a human standpoint, that's foolish. This was the high-tech warfare. This, these were the weapons, you know, the, the means of doing modern warfare in that day. And they had taken possession of it, and then they were to render it useless for battle. Why? Because they were to trust in the Lord alone and not in the earthly resources. It was a unique instance and a unique instruction to teach his people an important lesson in the midst of a time of great victory. Remember, when God's people are experiencing great victories is when they are most tempted to trust in earthly resources. And so the Lord took that away. They weren't going to win by horses and chariots. Psalm 20, you probably know this verse. You see some more background to it now. Psalm 20, verse 6 and 7. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, in the church, it's very easy to be tempted to use this world's resources to further our mission. To say we need these things and we can't do what the Lord has called us to do unless we have these things. If only we had more money, think of what we could do for the Lord. If we only had more people, think of what we could do for the Lord. If we only had more gifted people, think of what we could do for the Lord. If we only had more charismatic leaders, think of what we could do for the Lord. If we only had a bigger building, think of what we could do for the Lord. You see, that's the temptation. That's the danger. These things are all good things, and we do use them for God's glory, but we don't need them. We only need the Lord. As long as the Lord is with us and the Lord is fighting for us, that's all we need. Second lesson, we must follow God's commands in order to be successful. This section repeatedly, if you were to read it from beginning to end, it repeatedly emphasizes the faithful obedience of Joshua in particular. The faithful obedience of Joshua to God's commands. I'll give you one example from chapter 11, verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, don't get me wrong. Joshua was a sinner saved by grace just like you and me. He was a broken man in need of grace. But his life was characterized by obedience to the will of God. And that's what led to his success. The scriptures are very clear. Over and over again, God's word promises. All the way, if you go back to the Mosaic law, again and again, it's, as that law is given, it said, if you obey this law, God will bless you. You will find success if you commit yourself to obedience to what God has commanded. And doing God's will is where we find our success, not doing our will. If Joshua and his armies had decided after all these successes to go off and take on Egypt or Mesopotamia without God's instruction to do that, they would have failed miserably. 
It's God's will, God's plan, God's agenda that must be the map for our lives and for our futures. And how do you know God's will? You know the vast majority of God's will because you have his word. This is God's will. These are God's commands. It's pursuing holiness is where success begins. Remember, that was what God said to Joshua all the way back at the beginning of his mission. Couldn't be any more clear. Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It's a major theme in the book of Joshua. If you know the word of God and obey the word of God, then you will find good success. Which brings to the third lesson of these passages. We must trust in the Lord and not in our own flesh or our own resources. We must obey his commandments, obey his word. But thirdly, in order to be successful, we must learn to rest in Christ. Very significant that all of these victories are summed up in the fact that God did all this for his people to give them rest. Because this is a key promise in the gospel. Real rest. But the rest that talks about here that Joshua gave through his armies to Israel was a very temporary rest, a very incomplete rest, and it ultimately was only a shadow of a far greater rest to come. And the writer of Hebrews describes that rest in chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Hebrews 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. He's talking about the rest of what God has done, not what we have done. The rest of what God has done to save us. The rest that Christ accomplished. The greatest victory that has ever been accomplished in the history of the universe happened at the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb when Christ walked out victorious over sin, death, and Satan himself. And it's because of what Christ did at the cross and what he did in being raised from the dead that we have victory, that we have eternal rest once and all, once for all and forever. And I'm not just reading Jesus back into this text. I think the symbolism in this text is powerful in so many ways. I want to point out a couple of things that hopefully you've already noticed. Remember those five Canaanite kings? Remember when they were defeated, when judgment was pouring down upon them, what they did? They hid in the cave from the face of God, basically. And if that doesn't uh, ring a bell with you, let me take you over to Revelation chapter 6 where it talks in symbolic language about the day when Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, will return. Listen to the imagery here and see the parallel. And when Christ opened the sixth seal, this is Revelation 6, verse 12. And when Christ opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. 
And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You see, the imagery of the ultimate final victory that still is to come in the future is already here when these kings hid in the cave from the face of God's wrath. But what's really ironic about the gospel is that the imagery is actually kind of turned on its head because Christ became like one of those wicked kings in that he went into the cave, the stone was rolled in front of the cave because he had hung on the cross, he had been nailed to the tree as a symbol of being under God's curse. That's what you and I deserved. We deserved to bear God's wrath for eternity because of our sin, but Jesus, the perfect son of God who never sinned, was nailed to the cross, bore the wrath of God in our place, was placed in the cave, the stone was rolled in front of it, and the price was paid in full. And then he rolled the stone away and walked out victorious over sin, death, and Satan. As Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. By his death and his resurrection, Jesus Christ rendered our spiritual enemies powerless. And one day, he, the offspring of the woman, the Messiah and the King, will finally and completely crush the head of the evil one. And that day is described over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which also talks about the return of Christ, beginning in verse 24. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And there's even a neat little reference in, at the end of the book of Romans where Paul talks about how we will share in that victory in the crushing of the head of the serpent, where it says in Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's important you get the third lesson of this passage, because if I just said the key to success in the eyes of God, the keys to success in God's mission in your life or in this church, if I just said that the key is to trust in the Lord and to obey the first two parts of the lesson, and you miss the third one, your life is going to be filled with stress because you won't be resting in the finished work of Christ. Because, yes, trusting and obeying are the two first two principles in being successful in the eyes of God, but resting in the finished work of Christ is where you find your peace. Because it does not depend upon you. It's not about your efforts. It's not about your commitment. Because the blood of Christ has covered all of your sin, all your shortcoming, all your lack of faith, Christ has done all that needs to be done in order to bring you peace with God and a place in his eternal kingdom as a child of God. Christ has done it all. 
You can rest in what he's done. Bottom line, what have we learned? You want to be successful? The world has all kinds of standards for what it looks like for you to be successful in your life. If we as a church want to be successful, here are the three lessons. Trust in the Lord and not in horses and chariots. Trust in the Lord and not in the flesh or this world's resources. Secondly, obey his word. Be faithful to his word. Uphold the authority, the infallible, inerrant authority of his word. And obey it. Commit yourself to holiness, to obeying it. And doing the will of God. But all the while, rest in the finished work of Christ. What he has done to save you. Let's pray. Father, we have a lot of stress in our lives because we've not fully implemented these lessons for what it means to be successful in your eyes. Being more successful in the eyes of the world tends to make us more stressed out because we take on more responsibility. But Lord, we know that if we're really trusting in you, we're trusting in what Christ has done for us. And we can rest in that. We find peace in that. We find hope. We find joy. And so, Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending us on this mission. Thank you for being with us, for fighting for us. And thank you for the rest we have in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.